Welcome in. It's another edition of the Doyle and Derek podcast. Condition Indy Star. I'm your host, Derek Schultz, but the star, as always, is the very thankful Greg Doyle. How are you, man? I'm good. People don't know because they're not watching this, but but you know, Derek's got you, you know you've got the voice of God. I told you that you got these great iron lung pipes, and you lean in, and you've got this microphone that looks to be about twelve feet tall with a huge padded thing. <laughs> I mean, it's the kind of it's the kind of thing that that Michael Jackson would have sung "Beat It" to. Um, and you ask me if I can hear you okay, and and like you don't need any help, but you could you could hold up an empty can of soup, talk into it, and yes, Derek, I'd hear you okay. Oh, I appreciate it, man. You know, we all have uh, we all have something that we were, I guess, gifted with, and I've always liked my voice. I guess one of the few things. Um, I don't know. I have a nice beard. I have, a, I have a great ability to grow a really sick mustache. So there are some <laughs> things that I could do really well. Uh, and then you have your ability to write. And what I always admired about you was your heart for other people. Yeah, well, I'm not sure why you and you have your ability to write. And then you just kind of trailed it like that's all I got. Like, listen, I'm I'm, I'm chiseled like Adonis. I I can jump out. I can jump out of the gym. I mean, there's so many things. But I mean, my face. Jumping, we, huh? No, I not really. Jump. <laughs> no, but in high school, I could dunk a, a uh, volleyball. Well, I I know that you're uh, of the two, and this isn't saying much. This is a low bar. But of the two people on this show, you are clearly the more gifted athlete. With your baseball stardom from your prep days, and uh, yeah, soccer, right, was the other sport where you were really good. Listen, in this city, I could have a podcast with all but about three people, and that person would say, "Of the two here, you're the better athlete. I'm better than everybody, but I, but I think a, a young T. Y. Hilton gets me, and uh, Oladipo before surgery gets me, although not yeah. anymore. And um, I don't know. Miles Turner has length on me, so I'll give Miles Turner that. You know what? Maybe Watt Fillier. Watt Fillier probably is a better athlete mm-hmm. than I am. Uh, but the list is small, Derek, and you didn't make it. David Bell is not a better athlete than you are? No, but he's got a better heart than me. He's got a – that guy, what a sweet guy that is. I mean, do you watch him play? You watch the way teams target him and, and bully him. I mean, they're trying to – it's clearly, you know, we're not better than you. We're not, we're not stronger than you. You're going to catch everything you touch. So what we're going to try and do is it's like they play him like the New England Patriots play everybody. They just beat on him all game long and dare officials to call it. And dare David Bell to get mad about it. And officials don't call it. In fact, they call pass interference on Minnesota, on Purdue. But Bell doesn't get mad. He's uh, I love that kid's heart. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that we brought that up because I actually – I know that we usually start Colts, but I actually kind of wanted to start there because I thought it was a really interesting uh, – not only the game Purdue and Minnesota, but obviously the game that we had been really looking forward to and anticipating, the IU-Ohio State game, I thought really kind of lived up to the billing. But – since we mentioned Bell, let, let's start with that Purdue game because you were the one that asked the question to Jeff Brom about his reaction to that OPI. And look, I, I'll, I'll sit here and say it, it, Purdue played sloppy as hell, right? They made 10 million mistakes in that game. They turned seven points into zero with that blocked field goal in the red zone uh, that, you know, the touchdown originally for Mondale Moore that he bobbled. So they made a million mistakes. But what I hate, Greg, is – I hate letting the officials off the hook. Purdue, bottom line, down pass that was erroneously taken away from them. And that's what I have a problem with. So we can sit here all day and talk about, ah, the game's 60 minutes and blah, 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 blah. Should have done this, should have done that. The referees are paid to do a job. And it was among the worst calls that I've ever seen. I, I don't want to be too knee-jerk and say it was the worst one ever. But it was on the short list, no question. 
you know, I wrote that story in real time. I mean, obviously, I wrote, I watched the game, wrote it, and, and I was so angry. You know, I'm just so fired up. And and I didn't – what I wrote didn't all run because I, I took it out. But um, I compared it to – and I still mean this, but it's a, it's a, it's a big gap. But in 30 years of covering sports games, I think I've written before, – before Friday night, I think I've written just one time the referees blew this game. Just one time. I mean, referees make mistakes all the time. And it's just a lazy, easy thing to do. If you got nothing else to say, just say the referees blew it. Um, I've done it one time in my life, one time, and that was uh, the 1995 ALCS, Yankees and Orioles. Do you remember? You ever heard the Jeffrey yeah, the Mayer? Jeffrey Mayer game? Of course, I, I was. Remember. I was there. Really? I was there. Wow. I was. I was there for the Jeffrey Mayer game. Derek Jeter hits the ball to right field. Um, it's it's not going to go over, but it's close. Mayer is an or is a Yankees fan at Yankee Stadium. Leans over, catches the ball. So Tony Tarasco of the Orioles can't catch it. Instead of calling out, you know, interference and calling Jeter out, they gave him the home run at home, aided by a Yankee fan, and that broke a tie. That tied the game in the eighth, four yeah. extra innings, and the Yankees won, and they went on to win the ALCS. So that night I wrote, "Oh my God, the referee, the umpires blew this game." 30 years later, I finally did it again, 25. And I, but I took out – I wrote about Jeffrey Mayer the other night, and I took it out thinking – because that was so egregious. That was so awful. Oh, it's crazy. The Purdue one was bad. It was bad. But I, I've watched the replay several times, and to be fair to the truth, um, the tight end's arm does go back. He's not just running. His arm does go back. He does touch the guy. But that hand fighting, I don't know what you call that, but what you don't call that is pass interference with 45 seconds to go and the game will be decided by that whistle. You don't call that. Yeah, contact is not interference. Uh, right. Interference is interference. Contact happens all the time. So, yes. you know, the people freeze framing, uh, you know, arm bars or whatever else, I mean, you, you can make that into whatever you want. It's funny that you mentioned Jeffrey Mayer. Um, Jeffrey Mayer and I are the same exact age. And I grew up a oh. rabid Yankees fan. So in 96, when that happened in the ALCS, um, I was in eighth grade. And I remember that. Well, I remember Bernie Williams homering off of Randy Myers in extra innings. And uh, Baltimore actually came back and won game two. So they could have been up 2-0 at that point. But the Yankees won three straight in Baltimore and ended up winning the series. And then, of course, the rest is history. Went up to win the championship. But um, I, I, my childhood was benefited by two of the most egregious sports calls ever. The, the Jeffrey Mayer home run and then LJ's four-point play in 99. Because I was also an equally big Knicks fan. Yeah, I don't remember the LJ four-point play being – I mean, I don't remember what happened. Uh, it was – Three of the conference finals in 99, the Knicks were the eighth seed, and the Pacers were the number two, and uh, Pacers were up three, you know, 30 seconds. I don't remember actually how much time was left. It was deep into the final minute, and Antonio Davis stepped out to contest uh, Larry Johnson three-pointer and may have lightly brushed LJ's elbow if there was any contact at all. I think he tapped it real quick. They gave LJ the foul and the continuation. He hits the three, hits the free throw. Um, I think Mark Jackson had a, a final heave or a, a shot that didn't go. And the Knicks ended up winning that game and then, of course, ended up winning the series. Yeah, okay. That, that was a bad one. Uh, Eugene Jeffrey Mayer, the same age. Any idea what became of him? Like like Bartman, the Chicago Cubs fan. People talk about Bartman and whatever happened to him. Whatever happened to Mayer? He played – I read – this was like 10 years ago. I read that he was uh, he was the all-time hits leader at his college. He played like D2 college baseball and set the hits record. Um, and so he was a, a really good collegiate baseball player, but I, wow. I don't know what's happened since then. Um, that sounds like something I that would be a great where are they now for sure.
Hey, great word right now. Yeah. yeah and he, I mean, him, him and Steve Bartman, right, are probably the two most famous fan interference, certainly in baseball. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm trying to think um, in any sport, name a fan. Um, I, I can't name one in the NBA. We've had a few. We've got that weird guy, that Don Goldstein, is that his name? Looks like a lizard, um, but he doesn't yeah. do anything wrong. He just something, is a famous fan. Something green. The guy that threw the beer at Ron Artest, I'm trying to remember, John Green or something. It was some real basic name. Turtles uh, all the way a, down. That's not a household name. Look, you throw a beer at Ron Artest, and I don't care if your name is John Green or not, it's Turtles all the way down from there. <laughs> you know oh. who I felt bad for? The guy oh. that Artest went after because he's not the one that threw the beer. So oh. can you imagine if you're not the person that threw the beer and then Artest is charging up at you? I'm not sure anybody's going to get this reference, and I'm not sure you got it. Do you get the Turtles all the way down reference? Yes. You do? Well, yeah. I don't think you do. Turtle head hiding at the top and no, turtles hiding. No, for the love of God. It's John a, Gr- a, Oh, okay. Jesus. Sorry. I thought it was like a reproductive parts like. No, it's a li- I should have known you wouldn't get it. It's a literary reference. John Green is Indianapolis's most famous living author. Sure. One of his books is called Turtles All the Way Down. Oh. Right. I know Fault in Our Stars. Listen, I could be wrong. I'm going to Google it. Maybe it's not Turtles all the way down, <laughs> but I think it is because you don't forget something like that. That's the dumbest title of all time. Uh, I need to read it. Turtles all the way down, novel by John Green. There okay. you go. A literary reference made everybody richer. Or we're all poor for it. understanding of the, the arts here in Indianapolis. Um, well, you're on with me, man. You've got enough. You, you, <laughs> if, if, you're my, if you're my podcast host, you, uh, you've got all the arts in Indianapolis you need. So getting back to it, you know, Purdue suffers their second loss, and now um, they can still run the table, I guess. I mean, I don't think there's any reason why they can't even beat Indiana, even though I I put Indiana obviously above them right now. Um, It's a pretty manageable stretch coming up here, but I don't know, Greg. I've just been – I'm just disappointed because it felt like it was there for the taking for Purdue. Like, they very easily, to me, could be exactly where Northwestern is, and, and it just feels like a missed opportunity. Oh, yeah, gosh. I mean, Purdue is – and they could be undefeated right now, right? They're uh, – yeah, and Northwestern's really good. You know, Purdue's good. I mean, Purdue's good. If, if you're – if Northwestern's a game where you kind of should have won and you look at Northwestern, they're going to be in the Big Ten Championship game. And I don't think it would stun anybody, especially after seeing what IU did to Ohio State. You know, Ohio State's good. I mean, they're very good. Um IU gave him a great game. Northwestern's going to give him a great game. Anyway, Purdue's really good, and and that Purdue IU game will be great. And Purdue is weakened this week by George Karlaftis, their best defensive player, the kind of guy that makes everybody better because the, the other team will will run away from him and they will load up protection on him, and that just makes everybody better around him. Karlaftis has COVID and won't play this weekend, and that's a shame. Of course, they're playing Rutgers, I think Rutgers. So I don't think it matters, but but anyway, yeah, they're they're really really good, and, and Rondell Moore makes them really really good. He is so yeah. I forgot if you can believe this because it's been so long since we've seen him play. I forgot how good he is, um, and I know he's all American. I mean, I know what his bio says, but in the last you know couple months, as as he wasn't going to play and he opted out and he opted in, and David Bell has just become this future NFL star because he is a future NFL star. Um, it, you, you kind of I kind of forgot exactly how special Rondell Moore is. It's hard to believe Purdue has two of them. But Rondell, I mean, watching him play, the athletic ability, the I mean, he's just different. Just like David Bell is different. Like, there are really good receivers in college, but a lot of them, 
they're not different. They're they're really good. They're not different. David Bell's like different good. Athletic. Different. And that's pretty hard to do. Best thing you can say about him is that he sat out a year and a half and he just turned it on like that. And it, it was like there was no rust at all. Like Rondell Moore immediately made his impact felt. Uh shifting over to Indiana, there were a lot of things that surprised me about that game, notably um Ohio State's sloppiness. I thought Indiana was sloppy, too. If they played a, a, a better game, they would have won with all of those Ohio State mistakes. That said, the, the biggest shock to me, Greg, was, you know, Justin Fields is being talked about as perhaps the top quarterback prospect on the board. And he was not the better quarterback on Saturday. And it, it wasn't particularly close. I mean, I thought what Michael Penix did was unbelievable. I, I, I thought he made some throws. That 68-yard touchdown to Freifogel, that throw is a throw that only I, seven or eight collegiate quarterbacks on the planet right now can make. Yeah, Penix especially. Got, he doesn't some fields wheels, but he's got, you know, the ability to move. I mean, he's special. He'll, he'll play in the league. I don't know how good he'll be in the NFL. I, I, I'm not, and I'm not saying that as a, because I don't believe he'll be any good. I just don't know. I, I, you know, some, like I say, David Bell is different. You look at David Bell, like you go, okay, that's different. Justin Fields, that's different. He's going to be a really good pro, but I, you, and their defense and Tom Allen and what he does and, and Kane Womack too. I mean, they, they put him under pressure and he couldn't handle it. Um, so maybe that, that shows that he maybe won't be a great pro. I don't know, but, but yeah, I, I, you made him look bad and he's ne- not bad, but they made him look average and he's never looked average. You, he, he, do you know what he was completing this year? Do you know his percentage going into that game? Justin? Yeah. I read Justin. Completions and 12 touchdowns. Didn't he going into that game for something crazy like that? It might have been 11-11. You might be right, but okay. I know that his his completion percentage was 87.5. 87.5. <laughs> oh and it, it was I, – I say only three games. It was only three, but it wasn't one game. It was three, 87.5, and he had he'd thrown three picks in his entire career in like 500 passes, and Indiana picked him three times in 30 passes. That was a great – and the thing about Indiana, if you think about them um, – I, mean, I guess you ought to think about the defense. Jamar Johnson, Jerome Johnson, those are pros. <clears throat> those guys are playing in the NFL. And they've got more pros than that probably. Micah McFadden might be. I'm not sure what his top oh, end speed is. Oh, Taiwan Bowen absolutely is going to be. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Oh, Reese, Reese Taylor. Reese Taylor will be a guy that, that – I mean, we'll see. Reese Taylor might be an NFL starting quarterback for 10 years. Or he might be a guy that that just kind of bounces around and, and ends up playing on eight teams in nine years because he's good enough to be in the league but maybe isn't good enough to start. I don't know. But that you're right. They have at least two NFL cornerbacks, at least two. And Tywan Mullen will play a lot. Tywan Mullen reminds me of Kenny Moore, and that's and I love Kenny Moore. That's high praise. And Freifogel, Fillier, and we said this after the Michigan game, Greg. Freifogel, Fillier, and Hendershot. Uh, that's about as good of a wide receiver, wide receiver, tight end combo as you're going to find in the country. I mean, that, those are unbelievable weapons that they have offensively too. Those guys, all three of those guys, could play anywhere. Well, if if Miles Marshall, Miles Marshall, and David Ellis, if those are your three and four receivers, that's really good. Um, but but yeah, it takes something special to make those guys because they're really good. Hendershot, I would have agreed with you on how good he is, and I do think. I mean, I love the way he. I mean, he he looks different too. Frankly, when he has the ball in his hands, he just looks different. I mean, he's six five, two fifty, but he doesn't run. I mean, he looks different. He's special. But he's been dropping balls left and right this year, and I, I right. don't, yeah. I don't know why. I, I, you know, I don't get it. He also had some off-season issues, and I don't want to undersell them. I, they were very serious, and I'm just not an expert on it. But they involved domestic violence, and I don't think he was flat out acquitted. So I'm not trying to undersell it by 
whitewashing over whatever the allegations are. I just don't know them well enough to talk about him here. But I, but I know he's been through some stuff and he's done some stuff. And I wonder if that, if his uh, focus or even his confidence, his self belief, has maybe been shattered by what you know he put himself through, what he did. So I don't know. But he's not quite as good as he was. But physically, he is special. Usually, that na- the narrative around a guy like Tom Allen and a program like Indiana, anytime a, a, a program that has been struggling for a long time has this epic turnaround with a, a new-ish head coach. I understand Tom Allen is in season five on the staff and by what is it, season four now as head coach. The, the talk is, okay, well, what's his next job? And where's he going to go next? Because people are going to come calling. And I've seen a lot of talk about that nationally where Tom Allen is going to end up. And, and Greg... I might be completely naive because there are times where I've thought guys were staying and they ended up not staying. Tom Allen strikes me as the guy that would stay at this program for as long as they would have him. Uh, he, he just doesn't strike me as, you know, PJ Fleck or something that is moving on to whatever is the stepping stone that is the next stepping stone. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. I don't, I don't you know, I don't, I don't blame these head coaches for wanting to move on and, and continue to climb the ladder. But to me, just with the passion that he has for the state of Indiana and the decades that he has spent uh, co- coaching here and, the, you know, the deep ties that he has, I would think that, and if he feels like he could win at a high level at Indiana, it's a great job. You know, there's a, there's a reason why Ohio state basketball and Chris Holtman is such an attractive job. It's because it's a football school. So your bar of expectation and your pressure is dialed down significantly because anytime you lose people just say, okay, when's spring football, or in this case with Indiana, okay, when's midnight madness. I mean, I, I think if, if Indiana can turn this into Iowa or, I don't know, Michigan State somewhere along there, or, or even, you know, and this is, a, this is a high ceiling that I don't think they're going to reach, Wisconsin, let's say, and what they've done, I don't think there's any reason why Tom Allen would ever want to leave. Yeah, and, and we had a situation like that um, two years ago, I guess it was. You know, it's hard to tell time anymore with this COVID thing, but when Louisville came after Jeff Brom and people like me, and I'm sure you, said and wrote that, you know, this is the kind of thing that typically you lose your coach. You know, if your coach went to another school and that school can win and they come calling, he's gone. And Purdue, you have to understand that's going to happen. But but people like me, and I'm sure saw in Jeff Brown something different. I don't know. I think Brown might be that rare guy, in part because it had only been two years. I don't think he felt like two years, whatever it was at Purdue, three, whatever, one, whatever it was. It was two. Um, yeah, it was two. It was two. Okay. It just, yeah. I didn't think Jeff Brown was kind of, he might have left after five. But I don't think he's going to leave after two. And we all, I wrote that. Anyway, you kind of look like a homer writing that, but it was true and it happened. And so, anyway, the same thing with Tom Allen. It feels a little homerish to say that someone's going to money whip him, whether it's Tennessee, yeah. I mean, pie in the sky, Michigan. Someone's going to come after him with a whole lot of money and a whole lot of prestige. It's kind of, it feels a little bit homerish to say Jeff Brom's not leaving and neither is Tom Allen. And yet, you know, you look at these things, they're individual, unique snowflakes situations are, and so are coaches. Sure. And I just like you say, Tom Allen, he's an Indiana guy. Newcastle, Ben Davis, um, his son is going to graduate from IU. And I, I think, I'm not even sure, but I think his son can play next year. Thomas, right? I think he'll be a senior yep. next year. Or, anyway, is Tom Allen going to leave with his son entering his senior year or whatever? Whatever. I mean, Tom Allen might be a redshirt junior next year. I have no idea, Thomas Allen. So I, I don't think he leaves either. And now, I say that we all have a price. Even if we don't know we have a price, you know, you could sit there and say, I would never leave. You can't pay me enough to leave. And then someone says, X, and you realize, holy crap. Okay, it turns out I have a price. Goodbye. Um, 
so Tom Allen might have a price that he even he isn't aware of, and you can't fault the guy if he does. But having said all that, I expect him fully to be back next year, which is crazy. Kevin Wilson had Kevin Wilson done what Thomas Tom Allen's done, oh, and Kevin was yeah. right. Bye. Yeah, right. He was. Yeah. Right, he'd be gone. Like there are some guys you just know, um, and like you say, you don't hold it against PJ Fleck. PJ Fleck is gone from Minnesota. I mean, if Michigan comes after him, he's gone. Like he's, I don't think he's all in. He he says he's all in. I don't believe it. Tom Allen, I believe he's all in. Yeah, and and the thing, you know, it's funny that you bring up Brom because I think Brom and the Louisville job is like Allen in a lot of ways to the Indiana job in the sense that um, it's home. And, and that's why I thought Brown was going to leave more so than Louisville. I don't think Louisville is a step up necessarily. I think Louisville is kind of a lateral move from Purdue. But the Brom family is royalty in Louisville. I mean, he was Mr. Louisville. Right. And I think that was always when he started at Western Kentucky, I think that was his hope to someday end up as the head coach at Louisville. So uh, I was shocked when he ended up turning them down. But I, I think Allen has that same passion that Brom has for Louisville that, to Indiana. And, that, and that's why I, I feel like – at least in the short term, he'll remain loyal. Um, and, and, and let me say one more thing about this is that what Tom Allen has here in Indiana is, I, I don't know that, it, and maybe it does, but I'm not sure it translates perfectly anywhere else because he part of what he's done here in Indiana is he's played the, and he's played it sincerely, but he's played the I'm from Indiana card. I can win here. We can win here. Why not us? Let's do this. You know, that is his thing. And he's, that works if he goes to Tennessee. In fact, it doesn't. It doesn't work. You're not from here. He can sell. I mean, look, Tom Allen's going to recruit wherever he goes. But anyway, I just think you know there's certain jobs that are, and, and I, uh, well, you know, I, I tease with you a lot, and I teased earlier about John Green and literary, and you don't need to worry about anybody art, artistic in this city because you got me, and that's enough. And I, I tease about that, and you kind of moved on like I was serious, and I wasn't. But um, <laughs> this is sort of semi-serious. When I say this. Um, I mean, Tom Allen's going to be coach. He's going to be Big Ten coach of the year candidate. Fitzgerald might probably will win it, but anyway, Tom Allen's really good. Okay, he's really, really good. And I and so I, I don't want to compare me and my job. Like I'm as good as he is in his job. I, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that there's certain jobs that you have where it just fits just so right, and you couldn't recreate that somewhere else. And I've thought about you know the star a lot as the newspaper industry is you know hurting. And anyway, you think about stuff and and. You know, people call me, and I don't think I could recreate. I couldn't recreate my experience here anywhere else. I couldn't do it. Uh, so I just say that as an analogy that I'm not. If Tom Allen, I'm not sure he can recreate. He, he's got he's got a better chance at Tennessee than I would at the New York Post. But um, not that the Post called me, heaven forbid. But anyway, my point is, I, he's got something special, and it's special in part because he is here. And I think you're seeing now, uh, unlike. 30 years ago, we've had this discussion a lot with college basketball coaches and particularly coaches that have turned down Indiana when they've had an opening and people have been like, well, why are they turning down Indiana five national championships and all that? And you're saying to yourself, well, look, you can win and be happy in a lot of different places and you can get paid basically everywhere. So go find somewhere where you're going to be happy. I don't think people are as worried about the prestige of the program as they were 30 years ago. You know, people turning down Notre Dame for their opening. The reason is everyone's on TV now. Who cares? Hey, we have the NBC contract. So what? You know, I can I can coach anywhere and, and get my kids on TV and recruit just about anywhere in the country. Recruiting has become such a national thing. So, you know, I, I think a lot of it plays into Indiana's advantage with, with Tom Allen if they're looking to keep him around. Uh, oh, let's yeah. move on to the, let's go ahead and move on to the Colts. 
uh, signature win. I completely agree with your column. It, to me, Greg, I, I don't want to overstate it because it's just one of 16, but it was one of those games where if you lose it, you could see the season just going downhill and falling apart because it would be such a crushing loss when you had it there and it slipped through your fingers. And when you win it, you feel like you go back in January and you look at where the season turned or where things really kicked into gear. And I feel like this could be the game. So, you know me, I've, I've been very kind of pessimistic about the Colts so far this year, but I just can't say enough good things. I thought it was, I thought it was a win that really legitimized them even more so than the Tennessee win who I agree. Tennessee is good, but the Colts beat on Tennessee all the time for them to do that against Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. To me, that was a whole nother animal. I, I hate asking this question. Cause I, I don't know the answer. Are you sure you're talking about my story when you say that? I mean, yeah, you, I, you, I, mean I wrote that it was a good win, blah, 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 but I never really wrote that. This is the win that shows us they're going to no, do this. I, not not that. I thought that you you tweeted it or you had mentioned the fact that this this easily could have been a crushing loss that ended up turning into a, a great win. Oh, true. That, yeah, that, that was you. I, I, I know. Something I like I that. Yeah. You, you need to go back and look and tell me later. I, I, mean, so, I did write that they should have lost, but then but they should have won. Then they should have lost. Um, yeah. But they, they deserved to win. Um, and, and if they beat Tennessee in a couple of days, they're going to win the division. It's theirs. Cause I think that, you know, they'll have the tiebreaker head to head of Tennessee. No one else is going to catch them. So Tennessee will have to finish a full game ahead of them with only four or five left to play. That's just really hard to do. So this game put, and it's not like they, they, yeah, they, they, they held on and they showed their medal against Jacksonville. No, this was the green Bay Packers <laughs> and Aaron Rodgers. Like this yeah. was, that was a special win. That was a special win. Now, listen, the, the, the I've never even seen the replays and I, I was, in real time, that game was a 425 kickoff. I had, and this is no joke, you know, whoever you read around here, you know, got my paper, other papers, websites, whatever. I had the hardest job that night of anybody. My col- a column was due at 8.15 p.m. on a game that ended at 7.45. Try that. Try that. Kids at home, try that. Try having a 1,000 words due in 30 minutes on a game that, that, that changed five times along the way and the last 10 minutes changed three more times. Yeah. And then was one in, and then went overtime and was one on sudden death, which means it could have gone either way. If he misses that, you know, the, anyway, that was hard to do. Um, I don't even know why I brought that up. Uh, I guess other than to say that, oh, just in real time, that was a game where the holding happened so much that I didn't have time to watch it. I don't know what happened. I, I assume those were all good holding penalties, but that's hard to watch. Like, I, I almost find it hard to believe that, wait a minute. You're calling holding every single down? Every single down? Is that – did you ever – were those all legit calls? Yeah, I didn't they, they all look good. The only one that was even iffy to me was Zach Paschal. All the rest of them appeared to be pretty clear cut. I think the problem is, Greg, is that, um, you know, in the end zone, Rodgers threw that long pass, and it looked like you very easily – I don't remember which Packer it was. You very easily could have called holding in the end zone, which would have been a safety on that last drive. And, you know, to me – if, if you're going to penalize holding, that's fine. You can call it. But when, when one team has nine holding flags and the other team has one, you know, I don't know. I, I'm not, again, kind of like what we were talking about earlier with Purdue. I'm not ref conspiracy guy, but it was it was a little much. It's, it's naturally frustrating, regardless of your rooting interest, to have a game like that slowed down by, uh, I think it was eight straight flags. It felt like that, and I, I don't mind being ref conspiracy guy when when there's really something there. And it, the Minnesota game, um, and I just assume this is true. You know, there's a tweet floating around. People have seen it. I've seen it. That the referee that called that offensive pass interference because it's such a weird call. It was such a weird damn call. 
Um, the guy that did that is a Minnesota grad, which is not ideal. Um, cause you just, even if he, and I'm sure he's not thinking in his head, he's not thinking that's my alma mater. I'm going to stop this from happening. He's not thinking that, but in real time, bang, 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 your heart affects your brain. I mean, it affects things I write in real time. It just does. So, but that same guy, apparently, whatever his name is, the referee is infamous for making a similarly horrible call in a bowl game a year or two ago that benefited Minnesota. So you wonder, is that guy just not capable of calling Minnesota games? And I say I bring that up just to say that I don't know anything about the, the, the crew that called the Colts game. But when you see that many penalties in a row at that stage of a game, much like the Minnesota penalty against Purdue was at that stage of the game, that many penalties, that stage of the game, and it's so lopsided, one's holding and one's not, I don't. I just you, you'd like to. I just I would like to know who these who these guys are th- calling these flags because there's obviously a human element involved. And when something looks that weird, and that's not just a little bit weird, that was real weird. I w- I would like to know more. I'm not closing the door on that for sure. Three holding flags alone on Quentin Nelson, who continues to have, you know, I, I think a disappointing season. When you consider that you you raid Quentin Nelson on an all-pro scale, uh, he's been far from that this year. I mean, he's been fine, whatever. But uh, you didn't draft him six overall to be fine. Oh, correct. He's, uh, you know, it used to be, well, last year, two years ago, you would have almost every week you have a Quentin Nelson highlight of holy cow. And I don't think people aren't looking for him anymore. We're just, we're not seeing him. There there aren't those holy cow moments anymore. Because I mean, again, he's, people want to see Quentin Nelson holy cow moments. We want to see them and we're just not getting them. But he is holding a lot this year. Um, and, and also, I notice you know, several times a game, I, t- I keep play-by-play. And if something breaks down and, and somebody gets beaten, Costanzo, who, whoever, Costanzo, um, I note you know, so-and-so beat so-and-so in my, in my notebook. And so you know how it is with memory. If you write something down, you remember it more than if you're just watching the game. I've written down number 56 got beat on, on plays that you know, hurt. I've written that a lot this year in my notebook. I don't write it in stories because if it turns out it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter in the game. But – but I've written that a lot this year. He's if he gets all pro this year, it'll be purely on rep because he's not. Yep. This is this has been he's played here three years. This is worst year of three. It's a high bar. The first two were special, but this is it's weird. You wouldn't think he'd be going. He's coming off an injury and say, well, yeah, maybe his ankle. There's nothing there. He's just not playing as well. I don't I don't know why either. Let's talk about positive things. Um, you were waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for Jonathan Taylor to kick it into gear, and. I think you really saw him kick it into gear. I, I I hope he can keep it up. I was really impressed, Greg, mostly because he was breaking tackles and he, and he was doing stuff that we haven't seen from him. You know, this elusiveness, this speed, this physicality, we had barely seen it from Jonathan Taylor, and, and there he is making something out of nothing. You know, for, for him, the first couple of weeks of his rookie year, if a play was going to be designed for two yards, he'd get you two yards. He wasn't going to get you ten. Uh, I think you even said it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. That was a di- big difference between he and Marlon Mack making something out of nothing. And uh, I was just really, really impressed, especially because it almost all came in the second half, what he did against Green Bay. Well, Marlon Mack, if you if you remember his first year here, um, he was getting ripped because he had more minus yard carries, more zero and negative yard carries, especially on a percentage basis because he wasn't the lead back back then. But, I mean, he had like, I don't know, let's just say he had 80 carries that year. 35 of them were for zero or less yards. It was crazy. And But then a year, two, three years later, he he's like the next best thing to Le'Veon Bell when it comes to having patience and picking your spots and finding holes. He just, 
I guess it's the simplest thing. The game slowed down for him, and he he slowed down himself and started finding holes. And I think Jonathan Taylor, we saw that the other day. The, the, the line was very good also. But we did see him finding holes and hitting them and hitting them at the right speed at the right time. So maybe this is just the evolution. And it makes sense. I mean, when you do what he did at Wisconsin, and yes, they, they're always good with the running game because they've got great offensive lines and all that. But, I mean, he was the best of all of them. I mean, he was – had he played four years, he would have set the national rushing record that might never be broken. I mean, he was going to get 8,000 yards in four years. I'm not sure anyone will ever do that. Not in my lifetime. We'll see. But So he was truly special in college. It's no reach to think he ought to be special in the pros, and it's just going to take him a little bit of time to have the game slow down. And, and I think what we saw was that happening last week. Were the Pacers right to pass on Gordon Hayward if they indeed passed on him? I, I We all saw the reports about what Boston wanted, uh, and they wanted a lot. But – here you had a chance to get somebody and, and bring a homecoming forth for Gordon Hayward, the former state champion of Brownsburg, and, of course, the Butler Final Four hero. Was that a mistake in your eyes, Greg? Well, before I get there, he, he signed with Charlotte, right? Boston got nothing, correct? Yeah, Boston, he, he walked out the door. Yep. Of the two GMs involved, and, okay, Pritchard's the president, but of the two GMs involved in, in that Boston Pacers thing, Danny Ainge lost. He lost. Uh, that doesn't mean Pritchard won, but Danny Ainge had a, had an asset, and he could have gotten something. I'm guessing he could have gotten Miles Turner and a few pieces. The report was Turner and McDermott. Right. And he, and he rolled the dice on, they want Gordon Hayward bad enough that I can get Turner and T.J. Warren or Turner and Oladipo, and Pritchard wouldn't do it. So Danny Ainge, Danny Ainge doesn't lose very often, but he lost. Um, did Kevin Pritchard win? I, I don't I don't know about that. You know, um, because there's a third team involved, so you don't. It's not straight up head to head. Listen, De- Gordon Hayward. Um, first of all, is going to be 30 soon. Uh, I mean, I would love to have him here. Would love to have him here. Would love the story. Would love all that stuff. But he's almost 30, um, and he's coming off a horrible. It's, it's been a year or two, but but a horrible injury. Horrible. I don't. And he wants 30 million a year. I don't know. You factor all those things in. Do you give up your best trade asset, which is Miles Turner? And oh, by the way, either Warren or Old Depot. Um, do you give up those two guys for someone with with, my, with Gordon Hayward's health, age, and salary ex- expectations? You don't. So Kevin Pritchard did right. Now, once Gordon Hayward became a free agent, the Pacers did not have the cap space to sign him. They couldn't. So it's not like, well, why didn't they just sign him? Well, they couldn't. Now, they could have traded Miles Turner somewhere else, created the salary. You could say that he lost there. But I'm just not sure Gordon Hayward, $30 million a year, you know, I, there's a reason – he went to Charlotte, and there's a reason Charlotte is Charlotte, because they do things like giving Gordon Hayward four years, 120. I just I don't think you do that, but Charlotte did it, and we'll see. Perfect example of who Charlotte is. Charlotte had to waive Nicholas Batum on one of the NBA's worst contracts, waive and stretch him just to make room for Hayward, because they sign contracts like this all the time that are terrible. Right, uh, right. You, I I love Hayward, but 30 million a year, and you have to give up pieces for him. Uh, you know that that's the problem. The Pacers are. Not only are you putting yourself out there with a contract, just just signing Gordon Hayward was a risk, much less giving up your tradable assets for. No, look, there, there was no way they were going to give up Turner and Warren. That's that's ridiculous. That's a ridiculous ask. Um, I think Turner is around the same level of player of Hayward. So throwing in McDermott, I thought was more than a fair deal if that indeed was on the table. And if Ainge passed on that, then he passed on that. And you live with it. Um, what I'm surprised by, Greg, is that it at least appears, and I don't want to close the door to this. 
it at least appears that the Pacers might be content to just run it back with a new head coach and bring back all these pieces. Um, I'm still hopeful that they're going to look for a trade partner, particularly for Oladipo. But what would you say with where we sit today? And, and obviously, we're just guessing here that uh, the Pacers just this is their roster going into next season. I mean, it looks like that's where we are. You know, this this offseason, it feels like it's only been about five days all long, and it, and it has, but it, it all happened now. You know, it's all – the draft is coming, so we'll we'll see. Um, wait. I'm sorry. The draft just happened. Sorry. my Everything spins together. Holy cow, it's all done, right? They're done. I do think that um, they want to see with this new coach, fancy – you know, I mean, he's got different ideas. And, I, and, and going from this guy – we don't know what Bjork – we don't know what Bjorkman will do. We, we have no idea how good he is offensively. We just know that Nate Millen wasn't interested in it. And his staff wasn't interested in offense. This guy is. So we don't really know. We know that Miles and Sabonis didn't look right together last year, offensively and or defensively. It just wasn't perfect. Um, and we, we know it'll be a hard fit, but we don't know what this, this new guy, Nate. We don't know. You, I, I think, yeah, but barring, barring a, a really good trade that makes sense, I, I don't think it's the worst idea to run it back given that you changed the guy calling the plays. That's a huge thing to change. Yeah, running it back with McMillan would have been absolutely a mistake, whereas I'm at least open-minded to a new system, particularly for Turner, because I'm one of those lone people, Greg. I still feel like uh, Turner could blossom under the right circumstances. Um, I just don't think that a coaching staff with McMillan and Burke, and, and you know, the, the counter-argument to that is maybe they squeezed all of the juice out of Turner defensively and he reached his ceiling because he had those guys, but offensively, I just... Never felt like he really, and he's got to own some of that too. Uh, never really has put it together. So I'm, I'm still hopeful that that's going to happen. Uh, it's Thanksgiving week. In fact, we're taping this on Wednesday morning and Thanksgiving, of course, is tomorrow. And this has been a challenging year for a lot of people, but I always try to kind of sit back and reflect and think about things I'm thankful for and things that I've been blessed with. I think we should all do that. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Greg, because I know just like everybody else, you've had challenges this year too. Uh, you mentioned Gannett and the, uh, the cuts that they've made. Uh, I heart. I've, I lost my job in January. Uh, my my old radio job at the very least. But what is it that you're most thankful for with where we sit today? Well, I've got a story. It's going to be. Uh, it'll be online Thursday for subscribers. And it'll be in Thursday's print. So you know, you buy the paper, you can read it. Um, I, I I'm a dog guy, and if you you know if you pay attention to me at all, and, and I know a lot of people don't, but if you do, Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you, you know that I'm a, I'm a dog guy. And I've got a dog in my life, a special dog in my life. And the more I'm around this dog, um, just the more I real—I mean, I've always realized this, but boy, you see the world the way it is now and you just wish people could be more like dogs. I mean, dogs are, I mean, do their hearts are so pure. Anyway, I, I wrote about, I'm grateful for dogs and I'm grateful for this dog in particular. And I wrote about dogs and, and me. And anyway, I just kind of did what I do, which is I kind of wandered all over the place, but I enjoyed it a lot, and uh, yeah, this dog's special to me, and uh, yeah, special to me. Who were the two doggies in your fleet from yesterday? They look like cool. they pug, were they pug mix, mixes or what? What breeds were those dogs? I don't know what they are. I they think were really they're, cute. They're pug mixes. They both look like a gigantic. Their head is a gigantic <laughs> nose with two yeah. eyeballs. It's unbelievable. <laughs> they they live down the street. Their names are and the names. I mean, the the tan one is a tan one and a black one, and they're and they're like their head is so 
mushy. It looks like you squeezed an entire head. Like, you know, you get a, you get a ball of, of cookie dough and you squeeze it down. Their head looked like it was normally shaped a certain way and someone just squeezed it down, compressed it. But then their body, their bodies are like eight feet long and skinny. It's like a dachshund's body with a fist for a head. It's amazing. And they're fast. They're fast. You know, if you, if you watch birds fly, a flock of birds, it's amazing how one bird at the start will turn left and right and a hundred birds behind it go left and right with it. Like, it's amazing how they do that. These dogs do that. They run and, and one dog goes, and I'm talking fast, and the other dog just follows them like a bird with hon- honing device. But they're down the street and they're special dogs. And, and the, the tan dog is named Waffles. Waffles, plural. <laughs> how can you not love a dog named yeah. Waffles? So anyway, That's great. I go down there. I see that you can hear the dogs. They bark like crazy. When I hear the dogs, they're out. They're owners. I know they're owners. They're, they're, uh, Fred and Sarah, they, they've helped me with my car. Fred has. Um, anyway, I, I walk by their house and will stand outside their fence and literally throw a pine cone at their door so they can hear someone's outside just so they'll open it up and let their dogs come out so I can play with them. <laughs> they're, they're beautiful little dogs. Well, I'm thankful for my Shih Tzu mix, Ollivander Longpaw Schultz. We call him Ollie for short. Thank God. Um, and also thankful, you know, my, my wife, uh, we've mentioned this on the show, was on the COVID unit for about 10 weeks, and she's a trauma nurse, so kind of a hero in general, but, um, you know, kind of holding down the fort, as, especially while this picks back up again. And, you know, there's been a lot of stress and anxiety when it comes to that, but also for my parents who moved here to Carmel. They were in Connecticut for 40 years where I grew up and, and moved back to Indiana. They're both native Hoosiers. And um, I just don't know with where we would be without them and their help with childcare and with everything else. My dad is going to um, help me with a, a, a car that I'm buying and stuff. But, you know, it's just kind of cool when, when you spend 15 years away from your parents, you're like, oh, you know, I can do all this stuff on my own. And then when you have them here, you kind of take it for granted that you spend so much time away from them. And um, and it's great to just, you know, call them up and know that they're a half an hour away as opposed to 13 hours away. So uh, we won't see them tomorrow. They're in their 70s, and you know we're we're trying to play it safe when it comes to that stuff. But it's it's been great having them here. Yeah, I love that that we can find, and everybody can if you look hard enough. And some people have to look harder than others. But there there are things to be grateful for. And boy, th- after the year we've had, it's easy yeah. to focus on the things that we hate. And I we've all done that. I've seen Twitter. We've all done that for 11 months. But yeah, it's nice to go the other way for a day or two. Greg's Thanksgiving piece and more. Check it all out. Subscribe and like Indie Star and IndieStar.com, all the social media platforms, at Greg Doyle Star on Twitter, at Schultz975 is where you can find me. And we will be back next week to recap, hopefully, the Colts absolutely in the driver's seat in the AFC South. Have a great Thanksgiving, Greg. Really appreciate it. We'll talk next week. Thanks, Derek. Happy thanks to you and to everybody else.